All right, just a couple of announcements since this is Thursday night. Now, next Thursday night, we will be meeting here and maybe getting close to finishing Second Peter. And then the next Thursday night, which should be the, what is it, the 16th? We will not be meeting here live at all. And that goes for the live streamers. We're not going to live stream anything or throw a substitute up there because on Wednesday the 15th and Thursday the 16th, that is when the Council of Dispensational Hermeneutics is going to be meeting. So if you want to listen into the different presentations, there are several that are going to be good, but you have to remember this is more of a, of a scholars group and they... As much as I resist this, is I never read a paper. I always present, like I'm teaching, what is in the paper. But that's not what most of these guys do. They get up there and they read a paper. And uh, but it's usually good material and good good content. And it begins on at eight o'clock in the morning on Wednesday the fifteenth and Thursday night that week. They will be having a, a panel discussion on the significance of dispensationalism for people today. And the people on the panel are going to be George Gunn, I think. They may have changed him. That's what's on the list, but they may have changed him because Mike gave me another name the other day. And Mike Stallard, Andy Woods, and Wayne House. So those are, those are the ones that are going to be on that panel. So you have to go to dispensationalcouncil.org. That's dispensationalcouncil.org, one word. Or you can just search for council on uh, dispensational hermeneutics, and you'll get there and go to the page, and you can go to the tab for conferences and go to the one for 2021, and you'll get to the registration page. So they will be live streaming, and so we encourage you to live stream the conference that Thursday night. Okay, now the other thing is we need to continue to pray about Afghanistan. And uh, before we get to, before we pray, I'm going to give this report because I'm going to have to probably spend a lot of time in confession before I get past it after I give the report. But we need to be in prayer for the Afghani church and what is going on in terms of the assaults and the torture and the outright murder and slaughter of Afghani Christians is just beyond description. And we need to be aware of that and praying for those people. There are a lot of organizations that are working to bring those people out. And so we need to pray for those that have been displaced, those that are displaced and are somewhere else in Afghanistan, those who are displaced and been taken to some other country. And we need to pray for the protection of women and other uh, minority groups and the effectiveness of various uh, pastors that are still alive and still there in giving the gospel to people. Now today I went to a luncheon, and a lot more of what, we dis- what was discussed at the luncheon I'll present next Tuesday night. But this was a luncheon for pastors, and the primary speaker was uh, David Barton. Yesterday, sometime yesterday, he came home from Afghanistan. And David Barton has been working with Glenn Beck. And they have an organization, a nonprofit organization they have had for some years, working with Christians who are in these places where their lives are threatened and their persecution, and it's called the Nazarene Fund. And they raised $32 million to to rescue Christians from Afghanistan. And basically what Barton reported to us is that they they rescued at least 12,000, more than 12,000 were rescued. They faced two enemies over there. The first enemy was the Taliban. The second enemy was the State Department of the United States. And they had horrible opposition uh, from them. At one day, they had as many as seven planes full and ready to take off, and the State Department refused to give them permission and canceled their flights. Uh, this, these kind of orders come down, and the leaders of the State Department, Secretary of State, these are all appointees of this president. 
They eventually got all of those people out, but there's still operations on the ground, and it, Barton was a little confusing this morning, so I think some of those planes are still there, and they're trying, he said, because we have to, we're now, I never thought I'd be forced to negotiate with the Taliban, but that's what, what they're having to do. And they've had nothing but resistance from the State Department, and what they would have to go through was a lot of hoops where uh, they would be taking these refugees to various countries, and the State Department would then, once they got permission to bring them to those countries, then the State Department would call those countries and tell them that they were to refuse acceptance of those refugees. They were even on one landing mode flight when they were informed to turn around and go back. They had hundreds, mainly women and children, at the airport uh, inside of these planes. And then last week, there were uh, there was a full. Pl- they weren't on the plane yet, but there were. They had hundreds ready to go inside the airport when an officer of the 82nd Airborne. I'm not blaming him. He was probably just following orders. Ordered all of them off the tar- tarmac and on the other side of the gate. They were forced to comply, and when they got outside the gate, suicide bombers set off his explosion, and they were all killed. They also reported that uh, both China and Russia are helping the Taliban in searching out and tracking down all of the names of the Afghans and Americans that are still on the ground. Every Afghan who helped translated for or said anything nice about Americans. And the State Department is creating huge problems. The atrocities that are taking place are unbelievable. I have seen some incredible, horrible videos of the the executions that are taking place and how these these animals, these demon-possessed Muslims are doing this. And many of our soldiers are absolutely sickened at what they are ordered to do, but they are following orders to their credit and upholding the Constitution. But they have replete uh, Beck and Glenn Beck and David Barton said that repeatedly uh, they saw uh, God's hand working behind the scenes to make things happen. And so they were able to rescue over 12,000, and they're still working to get other things happening and other things on the ground. And, you know, this this morning uh, Beck was, as he he was getting up to talk about another topic, but he was asked to report on what they had been doing, and he gave a very brief report. And he pointed out, he said, I just can't talk about it. I'm so angry. I get so upset at our government and at our president and at his administration that I just, I just better not say anything. And that's the tough thing for us as believers because we have to show respect for that office. And I thoroughly understand and agree with that mother of one of the Marines last week who said that the president was a fact feckless, demented sack of crap. She said it four or five times. And unfortunately, as Christians, we ought not say that because that is not showing respect for the office. It doesn't matter how accurate it is to call him a feckless, demented sack of crap. We ought not do it. So we have to learn a little self-discipline. And I was very pleased, and part of me was jumping for joy, reading reports about parents, several parents, a number of parents, who were standing on the tarmac when their, the, the remains of their sons and daughters came back, who, when the president came to shake their hand, got within five inches of his face and read him the riot act and told him everything they thought about him and that all of this was his fault and that he cheated his way to the office and we're not going to stand up for that. Sadly, I don't think that that really fits the protocol for a believer. But maybe it's just one of those things where I just have to say it and then confess sin afterward. Because that, those things need to be said, but he doesn't care. 
It doesn't get, get, get us anywhere. So we have to hold, hold ourselves to a higher, higher standard. So now I think it's time that we need to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord and we need to confess sin if necessary and we need to be in prayer for these organizations and uh, you know Barton and Beck were working with a number of other organizations all trying to get those people out and we need to be, be in prayer for them and we need to be in prayer for our country because of what happened in this last election that every American ought to be ashamed and embarrassed about to allow that administration to take power. It's an embarrassment worse than anything we can imagine what has just happened. So let's bow our heads together, have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we know that you are in control of history. You're working things out to bring about that which will glorify you. For we know from Scripture, from passages like Acts 17, that the purpose of history is to teach people who you are and to bring people to you and to glorify you. And, Father, as we look around us, we just see the horrors that are the result of those who consistently have suppress the truth and unrighteousness and have gained positions of power. And a lot of reasons it's because Christians have been so involved in infighting over one thing or another that they haven't uh, understood what the real issues are and voted at all. Some have just not voted because they didn't like certain things and others just didn't vote for some people because they didn't like certain things and so we're in this mess. And Father, we pray that you might give us the ability to uh, trust you, to relax, and when we hear all these horrible things in the news, just to cast our cares upon you because we know that you care for us and you watch over us and that all things work together for good and that our job as pastors and as sheep in the church is to reflect your grace and your glory and to proclaim the good news of the gospel that in these desperate times as people are so often governed by fear for one thing or another that we offer hope and we offer the real answer and we need to make sure we know how to explain that so father we pray for us tonight as we study your word and we talk about the end game that we will be encouraged knowing that that all things will be made right at some time in the future. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, and tonight we're going to talk about the dissolution of the earth. Yeah, we're going to get beyond the day of the Lord. I know some of you have had, and I understand this, I'm the one who's doing the doing the study and having to work through all of these details. And it's unfortunate, but there are a few passages in Scripture that are very difficult and demand a lot of study. And I think this is one of the toughest passages I've had to deal with. And it's not as bad as Matthew 24 dealing with the Olivet Discourse, but almost. Olivet Discourse, if you remember, when I started, I went through uh, the fact that there were about three or four different interpretations of the Olivet Discourse by dispensationalists, all solid, well-known theologians and exegetes who take different views of what is going on in Matthew chapter 24. But that was nothing compared to what's going on here because it really deals with one of the toughest passages. And one of the articles I read this last week that was published in the Journal of Ministry and Theology, which is published by uh, Baptist Bible Seminary, by a man whose scholarship I respect. Uh, he was in the doctoral program overlapping me back in the back in the 80s and wrote an outstanding 
outstanding uh, doctoral dissertation dealing with the uh, sacrifices in uh, Ezekiel uh, 40 and 40 to 44 dealing with the millennial temple but I don't agree with some of his conclusions on the day of the Lord but one of the things he did was and I just didn't want to get this detailed with everybody was he identified that there were six different positions on the meaning of the day of the Lord all by dispensationalists who are pre-trip pre-mill dispensationalists and that kind uh, and and they have and the arguments for each position can get pretty detailed and you've got to chase down if you're doing this right as a pastor you have to look up every you have to understand what their arguments are what their evidence is and you've got to go look at every single passage and you've got to work your way through and exegete those passages to the best you can in a short amount of time in order to evaluate all of, all of their arguments. And some of those passages just seem to be a little bit ambiguous. So it's um, one of those things I just love to do. It's, it's a lot of fun, but it takes a lot of time. And it's difficult. I don't want to come in here and just tell you what the results of my study are on stuff like that, because if, if I do that... I will have a hundred questions from people say, what about this and what about that and what about this other thing? And then I'm going to have to answer all those questions and we'll take twice as long going through the topic as, as if I didn't do it all myself to begin with. So we are in this major section in chapter 3, 2 Peter 3, where the scriptures, God's revelation here is refuting the false teacher's denial of a literal future second coming. And that is fundamental, I think, to interpreting the whole, the whole passage. So we're down into verse 10. And, what, and this reads, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now, the way that is translated in that verse, it sounds pretty much like the earth and the heavens that we now know are going to be just completely destroyed, and God is going to recreate ex nihilo, that means from nothing like he did originally, that God is going to recreate ex nihilo, a new heavens and new earth. But that's only because the Greek was translated a certain way when there were other options. And that's where it, it gets into some real intricacies. So that's, that's what we have to do is understand this. So we started off talking about the day of the Lord and what is the day of the Lord. And my conclusion was that it appears to me, having gone through all of the passages that specifically speak of the day of the Lord, that it refers to a time of darkness and not light from Amos. It's a time in all of these passages where God is intervening in a special way within history to bring judgment. Some of these examples were have already been fulfilled. They were fulfilled in the past. They're called historic judgments. And other times, other passages are talking about something that hasn't happened yet that is, that is in the future. But it always depicts a special intervention by God where he directly uh, intervenes or directly shows up in history to bring judgment. And when that judgment is completed, because it's a purification, it, it establishes the kingdom. Now, a lot of the writers will assume that because it establishes the kingdom, that it includes the kingdom. And that was the point I made the last time. The real issue here is, does this term, the day of the Lord, involve only the, basically the seven years, plus or minus a couple of weeks, of the tribulation, the Daniel's 70th week, or does the day of the Lord include 1,007 years, all of the millennium plus the tribulation. And it seems to me, and as I've studied this again, that it primarily just involves Daniel's 70th week and the initial establishment 
of Christ as the king. But remember, there's a 75-day interval between the, end, the, between the second coming and the beginning of the kingdom, which is a time that Scripture describes that, that the, the earth is purified from all of the sin and corruption and everything else that took place, and that purification is described as being by fire, which is very similar to what this, this passage is talking about. So I want to just work our way through phrase by phrase as we go through this. We're not going to finish it tonight, but we're going to uh, cover a number of things. So the first issue really is the understanding of what it means to have a new heaven and new earth, as we see down in 2 Peter 3.13 at the end of uh, this paragraph. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the New King James translation. The Greek word that is translated new is the word kainos. And it is new as in being in existence for a relatively short time, something unused um, and, it, and recent, and it indicates a qualitative change. Okay? That's the emphasis there. So we look at Revelation 21.1, uses the same phraseology, indicating a qualitative change. Now, this gets confusing for people. It's confusing for me, too. The view that it's a renewal is considered a qualitative change. The quality is improved. Whereas the destruction of the earth, a complete annihilation of the entire universe, every atom, and a new creation from nothing is a quantitative change. Now, this word kainos indicates a qualitative change according to Trench and a number of other uh, sources. Neos, which is the other Greek word, is talking about something that is completely new, qualitative. quantitative change, but that's not the word that's used in either 2 Peter 3 or in Revelation uh, 21, 1. And it is also similar to the phrase, we'll talk about this verse again later, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, which says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Now, the language there in terms of the word indicates something new that is qualitatively different. But we still have the same body. We still have a sin nature at that point. But we are a new creature. And it goes on to say, old things have passed away. And guess what? That Greek word, we'll look at this in a little bit, that Greek word for passed away is the same word that that is used at, at one point in verse 10 for the passing away of the present heavens and earth. And so that passing away in 2 Corinthians 5.17 doesn't appear to be a complete destruction and annihilation and then an ex nihilo recreation. So that's one line of evidence for the view that this is talking about the end of the tribulation and not talking about the end of the, of the millennium. Okay, and I cited sources last time on this from uh, R.C. Trench, and uh, I'm not going to reread all of that, but he does emphasize that this is, uh, it indicates a quality change, not a quantitative change. So based on that analysis, it seems like the renewal view is better. Now, that's what I'm going to do, is I'm just going to set up, compare and contrast the two views as we go through these four verses, and then at the end, we're going to see where it leads us. And this is not one of those things that we get bent out of shape if somebody takes a different view. It's not a view that, well, you're a heretic and you're an apostate because you take one view or the other. There are several passages in Scripture that we just have to use a certain amount of latitude and grace because we recognize that, well, we haven't quite gotten this all figured out yet. It's not like back in the back in the 1700s in America when you had uh, large groups of, of uh, German Anabaptists who uh, immigrated here 
Most of them settled in Pennsylvania and in Maryland. There were a number of them. In fact, there was a uh, one of their churches was in, on the battlefield, the Antietam battlefield in the war between the states. And they were the German Baptists, and they were referred to as Dunkers or Tunkers. And they got all upset with one another because they had different views on how they ought to do their their baptism. One of the things that separated them from other Anabaptists was they believed that it didn't count unless you immersed three times, once for the Father, once for the Son, and once for the Holy Spirit. But then as they started canoodling about all of this, they decided, well, is it forward or is it backward? And some of them said it had to be forward, and others of them said it had to be backward, so they split, and then they had three times forward dunkers and three times backward dunkers. Now, we laugh about that, but every now and then there are things that come up that we feel strongly about, and that's just because we feel strongly about it doesn't mean it's necessarily something that that we're to split fellowship over or that we're to call somebody a heretic because they don't dot the I or cross the T in exactly the same way that we do. This is one of those examples in Scripture. So uh, it's in the Scripture, and it's important to understand what is being said here in in the course of this study. So the second issue is this phrase, a thief in the night. The day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. Now, this is important because you have two phrases here that are linked together. And every other time you have this phraseology linked together, it's talking about the end of the tribulation. It's talking about the second coming or the second advent of Jesus Christ. It's not talking about the end of the millennium. So we have passages like Matthew 24, 42 to 44. In Matthew 24... Jesus is talking about, all through this, about what are the signs of your coming. He's talking about the second coming. He's not talking about the rapture, even though you will discover that there are a number of Christians who think that halfway through chapter 24, he starts talking about the rapture because he says, you don't know the day or the hour that I'm going to come. But that doesn't mean it's the rapture when everything else points to the fact that he's talking about his second coming, and he uses that same word that we talked about already in this passage, parousia, and parousia can be either second coming or rapture, but he's not going to switch meanings in the, middle of the, in the middle of the discourse. He's talking all the way through about his uh, arrival at the end of Daniel's 70th week. And he warns him after going through all the descriptions of uh, Daniel's 70th week, he warns them, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, see there's that thief metaphor again, uh, had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you are to be ready for also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And a lot of people say, well, if you can count the length of days in the, in, in the tribulation and count through seven years, you ought to be able to figure it out. But that's presupposing a lot of things, I think, like you're going to be able to keep track of time. And with the, all the things that happen in the heavens and all the disasters and persecution and the fact that the Antichrist is going to try to change the times and the seasons. Like in the French Revolution, they tried to change the week from a seven-day week to a ten-day week. And everything gets, gets pretty confusing. And so um, it's not going to be easy to figure that out. And in both places, it doesn't say what day. It says what hour. We want, they won't know exactly when. They'll know it's close just like they knew pretty well it was pretty close when Jesus was going to come the first time, but they didn't know exactly when. Even even uh, Simeon and Hannah in the temple knew it was close, and God promised that they wouldn't die before they saw the Messiah, but they didn't know exactly when he would show up. Luke twelve thirty nine, which is a parallel to uh, Matthew 24, it says the same thing. 
But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. First Thessalonians 5.2 uses both phrases. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. So that's, that day of the Lord is talking about those judgments of the tribulation. So this is very clear. We're talking about the tribulation. We're not talking about something happening at the end of the millennium. Revelation 3.3 3 is a little more difficult, a little more challenging, because in, in this verse we read, uh, Remember, therefore, talking to the church at Sardis, and er- earlier it says you are dead. Now that could be spiritual death, and they're not really believers. That is not what I think is going on here, but it could be that. Uh, it's probably that they're carnal Believers, They're just living like they're spiritually dead, living in carnal death. And he says, Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Now, that's not the challenge to an unbeliever. That's the challenge to a believer. Hold fast and repent and turn back to God. Repent, unfortunately, over the years has taken on the idea of some sort of emotional response, some regret, sorrow, and just remember, that's not what saves you. It doesn't, God doesn't really care how you feel. That's not going to get you anywhere. Judas had incredible remorse. He was so remorseful about betraying Christ that he hung himself. But he's not saved because he had remorse. He didn't believe in Jesus. That's, the, that's what has to happen. So... Um, they they are to repent, that is, change their mind and turn back to walking with the Lord. Therefore, he says, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Now, I think that what that's talking about is just the suddenness and unexpectedness of, of uh, an intervention where that church would be uh, brought to div- divine discipline or judgment, but it does emphasize the fact that there's a judgment and it's sudden and unexpected. Revelation 16:15, I think, is a parenthesis in the action and it's a reminder to the readers of Revelation of what was said to the church at Sardis. I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame. But the point is that this metaphor, when used with the day of the Lord, does not ever refer to the millennium. It doesn't refer to any period in the millennium, and it doesn't refer to the end of the millennium. So the conclusion is that the preponderance of these uses indicate that this is the end of the tribulation and the second coming and not the end of the millennium. Now the second and the next thing is just looking at the context What does the context tell us? Well, the issue and the question that comes up from the scoffers, those who are uh, the scoffers who are scoffing, the question that they are asking, the point that they are making is that, um, well, why are you still waiting for Jesus to show up? He said he promised he'd show up a long time ago and nothing has happened whatsoever. And so they're just ridiculing Christians for waiting for something to happen and nothing ever happens. But the question that is asked is, where is the promise of his parousia? Now, as I pointed out when we studied this, parousia is that generic term for his coming, and it can refer to either the second coming or it refers to the rapture. But nowhere does it refer to anything that's happening during the millennium because Jesus has already arrived. He will have come And he is the king who is ruling over the earth all through the millennial kingdom. And so this indicates that from the context that it fits the tribulation view more than the millennium view. BDAG, which is the standard Arndt and Gingrich uh, updated lexicon of the Greek New Testament says, related to this word, that this word almost always refers to his coming in glory to judge the world at the end of the age. Now, I disagree with that, and I've given several verses where it's used, and it's referring to the, to the 
second, I mean, referring to the rapture, it could be either one. It's not a technical word, but the bottom line is it's not referring to anything in the millennial kingdom. So parousia, uh, for example, in 1 Peter 1.16, Peter talks about the fact that Jesus came in the past, first advent, and he uses the word parousia. So there it refers to the, to the first advent. In passages like Matthew 24, it refers to the second coming, but nowhere does it refer to the millennial kingdom. Also, in terms of the broad context of the book, there are several references to God's intervention in in history, either angelic, judging the fallen angels, and the angels that interfered at Genesis 6 before the flood, the sons of God who intermarried with the daughters of men, and... um, uh, and then at, at the flood, there was a divine intervention. And then with the um, um, Sodom and Gomorrah. And so all of this indicates that there's a judge, just a picture and type of judgment. Now, if you push it too far, because in those passages, it's talking about the judgment of the ungodly. Those are unbelievers then it would be a judgment at the end of the millennium. And so that would be in favor of the millennial interpretation because the typology there uh, would indicate that. But the typology there is not a very strong argument one way or the other, but it could go in equally in either direction. Now, another one, and I think this deserves a lot more weight than what... Uh, a lot of uh, theologians give it. Robert Thomas, Bob Thomas, who was in his mid-80s, I think, or close to 90 when he spoke to us here from this pulpit at the Chafer Conference in about 2006 or seven, is probably one of what was one of the preeminent writers on hermeneutics, the science and art of interpretation. And he certainly taught me a lot over the years as I read him and heard him speak in different conferences. And he said that while it looks like the Isaiah passages are determinative for interpreting Second Peter 3 as being at the end of the tribulation, Revelation 21.1 makes it seem like it's at the end of the millennium. And so no matter what the other passages appear to be saying, we have to interpret them in light of the last statement that's made about the new heavens and the new earth. And I consider that to be inconsistent with most of what he teaches because the phrase is only used four times in the whole Bible. It's used twice in Isaiah, and we're going to read those passages And it's used once in Peter. When Peter talks about new heavens and new earth, he's writing to a Jewish audience that's familiar with the Old Testament. And Hebrews, and uh, uh, Peter is very familiar with the New Testament. And so for him to give it a whole new meaning without introducing that into the context, it it is somewhat squirrely. And that's what you end up doing is all of a sudden he's just changing the whole meaning of the term when if you were talking to any Jew, their only frame of reference would be its two uses in the Old Testament. And usually, like with the Day of the Lord, it's the Old Testament that defines a lot of terms for us. And the writers of the New Testament aren't changing the meaning. Like words like kingdom. And when we recently we've been studying the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So let's look at Isaiah 65. 65, uh, 17 and following down to about verse 25. For behold, I God is speaking. I create new heavens and a new earth. Now, the word translated create is bara. That's the word that's used in Genesis 1.1. God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. Several times in chapter 1 uses the word create. But barad does not mean ex nihilo creation. It doesn't mean God created everything out of nothing. That's used several times when God isn't creating something out of nothing. But the word bara is always used of divine creation. It is never, ever, ever used 
where a human being or an angel is creating something. Only God can perform this kind of creation. And that's the emphasis in the word. It's not on the fact that it's ex nihilo. It is ex nihilo in Genesis 1.1, but not because of the verb, but because of what the passage is talking about, the context, and what other passages say. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. Now, he's creating Jerusalem, but this is in the millennial kingdom. He's not creating a new Jerusalem ex nihilo. He is restoring and renewing Jerusalem. He says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and join my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. Now, I've got to say something about this because this is really misunderstood. He's speaking somewhat illustratively. He's trying to illustrate the fact that people are going to live to be a 1,000 years old. And so when he is saying a child will die at 100 years, what he is really saying is being young is going to apply, and being like a child is going to apply. That doesn't mean they're going to still be little children, but it's going to be they're so young compared to how long they're going to live that the first 100 years are going to be considered childhood because they're going to live another 900 years after that. So he's not making a assertive statement that a child will live a hundred years and the sinner being a hundred years old will be accursed. Now what he's talking about there is a sinner who doesn't make it to a hundred years is going to be judged and executed through capital punishment. That's why he doesn't make it to a hundred. So this whole passage is poetic, and it's talking about the fact that everybody's going to be living to be a 1,000 years of age. It's not making assertive statements about uh, specific ages. Verse 21 says, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. In other words, they're not going to be overrun by foreign powers. There's not going to be wars. They're not going to be destroyed as they were so many times uh, as they were overrun in the judges and in a divided monarchy and other times. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall the days of my people and my elect shall long enjoy the works of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. So this is a picture of the curse partially rolled back where it's not involving animosity uh, in the animal kingdom or between humans and the animal kingdom. Then we come to the last chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah 66. For behold, the Lord will come with fire. Now I want you to remember this. The Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. Now when is this coming This is at the beginning of the millennium. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh. This is the judgment of the day of the Lord, the judgment at the end of the tribulation. The slain of the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in their midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, says the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and those among them who escape I will send to the nations, to Tarshish and Pul and Lud, who draw the bow, and Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands afar off, who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. Then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering of the Lord out of all the nations on horses and in chariots and litters. This is the restoration of of the Jews from all the points of the earth. 
And he goes on to say, verse 21, And I will also take some of them for priests. And Levite says to the Lord, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, so shall your descendants and your name remain. So almost, I don't know of an exception among dispensationalists that, that it's almost 100% that everybody takes both of these passages as talking about the millennium. And so new heavens and new earth describes what conditions on the earth are going to be under the reign of Christ. So those arguments all seem pretty impressive, context and the use of language. Then fifth, we have this language that the heavens will pass away in 2 Peter 3.10. We've looked at the Lord will come as a thief in the night, that indicates second coming, in which the heavens now in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. So the way that is translated makes it appear that the that the universe is going. There's going to be some sort of explosion or something, and the universe is going to just be annihilated. So what does this actually mean? The word that is translated will pass away is the Greek word par erkamai, which means to pass by or to pass away. It can mean to go past a reference point, whether that reference point is in time or going past a reference point in space. It means to come to an end and some, in some passages and no longer be there. That's what they claim here. Now, Michael Stigel, who is a theological professor at Dallas Seminary, has written an article on this, asserts, the terms translated to pass away do not mean to be annihilated. The terms are neutral, referring simply to going away or departing. One of these terms, par erkamai, refers to the old things of the believer's life that have passed away, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Remember that. I'll critique it in a minute. Drawing similarly on a new creation imagery and implying a remolding of a person's life and character, not an annihilation of the old and replacement by the new. Now, is that true? Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Those are absolute statements. The old things relate to the old man. The old man is everything that we were before we were saved. The old man is not the old sin nature. A lot of people, Chafer and others, used to say that the old man was a sin nature. The old man is everything that we were before we were saved because we're made a new creature in Christ. So, so this is saying this, that at, at the time of our salvation, we're a new creature in Christ, and the old things are gone. They're not going to come back. And old things are new. Now look at verse 18, because that explains it. Now all things, the all things that he's talking about at the end, the all things that are new, are from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So this indicates a total replacement. And and I would say it comes pretty close to talking about annihilation, but not necessarily. I mean, you, you can something's just gone doesn't mean it's annihilated. It's just not there anymore. So I would say his argument isn't expressed well. He's trying to make it mean too much. Uh, Ray Bowman, who taught at, I mean, when I met him and knew him when I was just starting seminary, he had been a professor of theology for a number of years at what was then Dallas Bible College. It no longer exists. And he was probably a young man in his 60s at the time, but I was 24, so I thought he was an old man. And he states in his book on the kingdom of God visualized, it never means annihilated but it means to pass over from one position in time or space to another position. Now, one of the things you have to understand when you are dealing with Greek words is you just don't go to Greek dictionaries and say, oh, that's what it means. Just like you don't go to English dictionaries, look a word up and say, well, that's what it means, because words are fluid. They, they change over time. 
And so that's why they have different editions of dictionaries that come out, because what a lexicographer does is he studies how people use words. And word meaning is determined by usage and not by what any dictionary says it means. And that's fundamental for any kind of word studies in the Scripture. We have to look at every use and indicate what it means. And so I would say that that there is a strong point here that you don't have to have the concept of annihilation present in the word uh, par erkamai. I'm not saying it couldn't refer to it, but it doesn't seem to be there. So this is, it could go either way kind of case. Now an interesting passage on this where par erkamai is used where Jesus says, Assuredly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. One jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. And this has been historically taken by a lot of people, the the dissolution and the annihilation of the earth. But it doesn't necessarily mean that if par erkamai in 2 Peter 3 just means passing from one state, state to another state, which is very much how it could be used in Revelation 21.1 because it is used there as well. And these are the kinds of things that Bible students can argue back and forth on just exactly what the shades of meaning are here, and it's not going to get you anywhere. So it could go one way or the other. But Revelation 21.1 says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it was annihilated. It just means it's moving from one stage to the next stage. And one of the things it points out is that there was no sea. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no water or no oceans. There's no saltwater oceans. Everything could be freshwater. There's going to be lakes and there's going to be rivers, but not necessarily uh, a saltwater ocean that has overtones at times in the scripture of something something negative. So it's it's interesting. What bothers me is one of the phrases that comes out, and I don't know how to answer this, but if it's bothering me, I'll let it bother you too. I like to share my misery. Uh, because in an Old Testament passage, God promises the Jews that they're going to be his people as long as the sun shines and the moon rises, something to that effect, but there's no sun or moon in the eternal state. Hmm. So, moving right along. In verse 10 it says, the next phrase says, the elements will melt with fervent heat. Well, that seems pretty clear, doesn't it, that that means it's just going to go away. It's just going to melt with fervent heat. But no, the Greek word is luo. Now, anybody who studies Greek is familiar with luo because that's the word we use to say all of our, our paradigms, all of our, all of our verb forms and everything else. It's all based on, on luo. And luo basically means to loosen something. When John the Baptist sees Jesus coming down, he says, one's coming after me, and I'm not worthy to loosen or untie his sandals. He uses the word luo. He, the luo also is used by Paul to refer to the, the release of a marriage contract, otherwise known as divorce. Okay, But it doesn't mean that something is destroyed or annihilated. It it has the meaning in a number of places of being released or set free. And so what is the earth being set free from? According to those who take the millennial view, uh, they translate it as the elements are melting, meaning everything is destroyed. But it really is hard to prove that that word ever means that. But what it does seem to mean is that... um, this idea of being set free, how is it set free? Because it is purified by fire. And all the different passages that talk about, we just read one in Isaiah 65 that talk about this. Look at Malachi 3.2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. 
And like launderer's soap, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. And um, Malachi 4.1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble, stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up. And that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, S-U-N, not S-O-N, son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts." And then the passage I read earlier, for behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind. And there are other passages that talk about this as well. And I'll come back and talk about some more as we go through the other passages. Now, when we look at the next verse, and I'm not, I'm not going to go into that. I'm going to go ahead and wrap up here in just a minute. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved... People go, oh, well, that, that's pretty much destruction. It's luo again. Set free, released. It, 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 trying to say that it's burned up or, I mean, are, are completely annihilated just doesn't seem to work. And the whole point of all this, and this is true whether it's talking about the judgment that comes at the end of the tri- millennium or at the end of the tribulation, is the exhortation, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct in godliness? The application of this is how we live today in light of the fact that there's future judgment and accountability, even for believers. That's at the judgment seat of Christ. And then verse 12 says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, which is just another way of talking about the day of, of the Lord. Contextually, that, that fits. Uh, because of which the heavens will be dissolved being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Dissolved again is luo. So we're not really dealing with annihilation terminology, but I'll come back and look at 11, 12, and, and 13 next time. Okay, so which is it? I lean towards the fact that this is at the end of the tribulation. But it could, you know, it's possible because there's a lot of a lot of other issues that are involved, and I'm just n- not rooting around in the minutia of the molecular structure of the deepest roots. Okay, it would drive you all nuts. But it seems to me like these are the issues, and they're not always discussed. And people just say, "Oh, well, that." Look at that language. That's got to be at the end of the millennium because it certainly the earth isn't dissolved and the elements burned up with heat at the end of the tribulation. Well, that as you've seen from the Greek, it's not really saying that, that it's annihilated. So I think that whereas up until a few months ago when I started getting into this, I always thought this was a very rare minority position and maybe the one or two people that I knew that held it were just, yeah, they were barking up a wrong tree. But as I got into this, I realized there were a lot of very respected dispensational scholars who held this view, and that at the very least, it's an interpretation that has, has legs. It has real possibilities. And there's a, some, some, the problem is you've got words that have a range of meaning, and they could mean one toward one side or toward the other side, and so you just—I just don't think that I've reached a point where I could say dogmatically that it's one or the other. But it sure seems like, with the context and the day of the Lord, like a thief in the night, that that sure seems to be more fitting to an end of the tribulation period than not. So we'll come back and look at more of those details next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to be uh, reminded that your word is clear, but sometimes our brains are not always clear and that it takes a lot of time and study and reflection upon your word 
uh, before we really come to a clear meaning of it. And therefore, your word always seems new to us as we come to it because we're always digging deeper and learning more. We're not changing the meaning. We're just understanding it in a better way, a clearer way. Father, we pray that we might take to heart the admonition here uh, at the end of Second uh, Peter that we are to uh, honor you and what kind of persons we're to be in our holy conduct and our godliness, and that this is really to motivate us to make sure that we're walking with you uh, consistently and steadfastly. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.